I just want you to know that I live on brand, okay? Hi, I'm Ray. Are you sure? I'm Veronica. (laughs) (laughs) I guess this might be... uh... Marge Simpson? It's good to see you. (laughs) The Simpsons. (laughs) But it's also the Chicklet Book Club. Yes, it is, where we read a romance novel and then we talk about it. Today we're kicking (laughs) off Sierra Simone Month with Saint. I'm so sorry. (laughs) You know what's interesting is that so um, we have a a massive surprise for everyone today. Um, First of all, you are going to hear Ray on two different days. One of which was, today is Saturday, in the year of our Lord, 2022. (laughs) And uh, we... I got (laughs) bronchitis. Ain't nobody got to happen at. And uh, so today is Saturday, but you will also hear Ray talking on Monday. So... Neither is good. (laughs) Neither is good. But this one's better, believe it or not, because you're feeling well, better. Well, they heard me on sun- Saturday, too. Oh, from... Oh, yes, because we... we Our schedule is being condensed because of the holidays. So we still have two episodes in December, because we were like, we're going to take a week off. And then this opportunity came up, and we were like, no, we're not. So <laughs> <laughs> False. Suck it. False. We will never take time off. <laughs> we don't You'll know how to set boundaries. <laughs> I mean, what came up? We couldn't. Say oh, there no. was no way we so. could say no. To, fuck that. I, no, absolutely not. I mean, you and I were texting uh, in the days leading up, and you were like, yeah. "I might have pneumonia." And I was like, "Okay." You were like, "But don't worry, I will be there." I was yes. like, "Okay." I said, "Honestly, I could be bleeding out, and I would show up for this." Literally went to urgent care yes, that morning. I texted you Got like 30 it. minutes before it was set to begin to make sure you were awake because I was worried that you would right. fall asleep and then not wake up. <laughs> I was like, who's sleeping? Who can sleep? Who can sleep right now? <laughs> I was just so embarrassed because I sounded like B. Arthur. Now I sound like Marge Simpson. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's okay. Oh, hold me. Oh, my God. Bart! It's pretty funny, though. It is very funny. Um, yeah. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> I keep trying to clear it, and it's not clearing. This is what I'll probably buy. Unfortunately, probably by next week, I'll probably have laryngitis. Great. Because that's usually how it goes. <coughs> so, anywho, sorry about that, Hoozlebees. Um, that. <laughs> so, <laughs> before we, we say what our surprise is, mm-hmm. let's do our bright spots. Yes, let's do our bright spots, shall we? Um, <laughs> how about... I'm, I have one bright spot that is separate from this, but I feel like our collective bright spot is basically yeah. going to be this, right? Yeah. Can, do you want me to sing to you? No, that's really okay. You don't have to. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, my God. See? <laughs> oh, my God. You poor thing. Okay. Um, so my own individual bright spot, in addition to our collective bright spot, which we will tell you in a couple minutes, uh, is that on Sunday, I sent my book to my editor. <gasps> ah! 
so uh hopefully i don't know uh it depends on when she can get it back to me but either very very end of december or hopefully beginning of january i will have a romance novel out in the world oh my god no his his did sl read the whole thing um, no, because she was also on a deadline. So. Oh, that's right. Um, but she has it all when she's able. She's read most of it. Mm-hmm. <coughs> and uh, one, I have most of it. Don't you I? have, I think you have all of it because okay. uh, I shared you on the same document that I shared okay. her on. Um, but my, one of my coworkers has read the whole thing. She's actually, I think she's the only person who's read the whole thing. Awesome. Yeah. So. Did she like it? Obviously, she liked she it. She did. Yeah. Or at least she lied real nice, you know? I don't know. <laughs> she said it was nice. So, um, yeah. I am super excited. I'm super excited for you. So that's another reason why we're trying to, like, move things around so that you yeah. can enjoy Yeah, so that I can try and, like, deal with that without having yeah, to. Yeah, there's going to be lots of things happening. Yeah. So we need a little time off. Yeah. Although, you know, we just shifted. Um Ray, would you like to tell me something else that is super, super good? Like, beyond good. Okay. Um, so, uh, uh, Christmas is here. The Christmas season is upon us. And I got trees all over the place. And uh, today, um, I watched uh, a little uh, couple, you know, Christmas movies from like the 80s that were like made me happy. That's good. I see your tree behind you. It's very nice. Yeah. It's got it's got a uh, horror movie people on yeah. it. So it's got like Freddy and Jason and Michael Myers and Pinhead. You know, what you think of when you think of Christmas. Yeah, of course. That's what I always think of. Yeah. 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 Uh, but I was watching the California Raisins Christmas special tonight and uh, feeling some warm, warm, warm fuzzies. Yeah, That's warm nice. Macockles. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Tis the season, bitches. Yeah. Tis the damn season. Yeah. Reason for the season. Mm-hmm. Yes. Serial killers in a, in a <laughs> in horror films as per yeah, your right. tree behind you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know, the other cool thing is, is I watched a really... A, a video that made me so happy this week and that was fucking um oh my, God, my brain just stopped <laughs> Brett Goldstein interviewing the Muppets about the 30th anniversary of Muppet Christmas Carol because I could not off the top of my head remember his character's name from Ted Lasso Roy, Roy Kent. Kent Roy Kent who said like they gave him like you can interview anybody you want and he's like the first he's like the Muppets I want to interview the Muppets I mean, yeah. I feel like it tracks. Yeah, because then I watched that six minute of him doing the Muppet Christmas Carol. And I fell in love with him even harder than normal. So, yeah. I, I don't blame you. I feel like um, all of this makes sense. And uh, I yeah. agree with it. So, Yeah. Also, he, he did tease that possibly a Muppet Pride and Prejudice with him as Mr. Darcy. And I lost my shit. I can't like I want to watch it. I would like to go to I would like to go right to now. there. <laughs> Him is Mr. Darcy and Miss Piggy as Elizabeth. So Oh my god. Make this Hollywood make this happen. I will say when I was watching because I finally did watch A Muppet Christmas Carol. Um yes. I 
Miss Piggy gets on my nerves like on a regular basis. Um, but yeah. in a Muppet Christmas she Carol, she does not. Because she doesn't have a big part. Well, yeah. I mean, that might. But then, like, she comes to. She's, like, about. She kind of goes ape shit on. Uh, I'm going to raise you right off the pavement. Yep. Oh, this voice works for that. Oh, it does. Yeah. So you also sound like Miss <laughs> Piggy a little. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, Ray. Um, All right. So should we tell everybody what our surprise is? Uh-huh. I'm going to let you do it. Okay, I'm gonna let you finish. Oh God, that joke is ruined. All of your fucking. All of your face. There you go. Um, okay. <laughs> oh, that joke is. It, ruined. The joke That's is right. ruined. Fucking. God damn it. Uh, all right. So, a few weeks ago, maybe like three weeks ago, four weeks ago, uh, we got an email, and um, I figured it was not going to be a big deal. Yeah, you yeah. same. Like you texted me, you were like, "I'm freaking out," and I was like, "Why?" So I went and I looked at the email and I saw like just the beginning of the subject heading and I was like, well, this is, this is going to be stupid. And then I opened it and it was like, hi, we were wondering if you would like to interview Sierra Simone for your podcast. Yeah. And we were like, this is that's real. this is a joke, right? This is yeah, this yeah. is fake. We were googling every person every person that was, that was listening to that email, email. We were googling them, checking out their LinkedIn. We were we've like, got, "Are you sure?" Got, yeah, we we've gotten like fucking <clears> tricked <throat> before. You don't get trick us. You again. don't get tricked us again. Like so, no. we started just googling <laughs> all these people who like work for yeah. Bloom Publishing. <laughs> yeah. Like looking at their LinkedIn yeah. profiles, be like, "Is this the real person? Is this a real person? Yeah." And don't fuck with me. Don't fuck with my emotions. Yeah, yeah. Don't play with me. It's it's too close to Christmas. It's been a rough time. Okay. Right. Um. Right. So we emailed her back, and we were like, "Yeah, yeah." <laughs> Ten minutes to yes. Yes. Like we would be honored. Um. And so we didn't want to say anything on the show until we until it happened. Like because we, we were would, like. Yeah. This, I hinted, we're gonna jinx but it. I didn't say. Yeah, yeah I, I didn't. I, I almost. Yeah, I was flirting with jinxing. I was it. scared. Yeah. So we we did not say it until just now because we did the interview on Monday. So. Um, and I sounded like this guy. No, you sounded worse. <laughs> I, I feel like it was worse. I sounded like yeah. I sound yeah. yeah I think it was worse. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> But yeah, so that happened. Um, we. She's lovely. She, I love her so much. She's so fucking smart. She is very, very smart. She is, like, the level of intelligence she is operating with, far I beyond where I, I am. So, I, I was so jealous. I was like, oh my god, the, <laughs> it was just the knowledge that she has and the history and the research that she's done and just it's um yes her research is impeccable yeah yeah and she's funny as shit too. she is she is yeah. funny as shit yeah yeah uh and, you know, yeah yeah so that is our surprise um as a result surprise, <laughs> surprise! <laughs> as a result um you know, our episodes are usually like two hours long anyway, and um, our interview with her is a solid 90 minutes. Um, and yeah. the only reason it was kind of that short was because she um, had an, she had to go meet with her someone, editor or something. So, editor, um, yeah. yeah, so we are going to split this into two parts, which we don't normally do. Um, but what we're going to do now is 
uh, we're going to intro Sierra, you know, like she needs a fucking introduction. Right. And then uh, we will come back with a part two where we uh, do our regular stuff. So, um, so that'll be the format today. Because we open, we ask her about her bright spots, so we thought we do. That we'd let you enjoy her bright spot. Yeah. Um, she's a delight. She is. If you have never seen delight. an interview with her, you are in for a delight. I mean, truly, like, she is just a wonderful person. I was on a high for the rest of the day after we talked to her. Yeah. 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 It was also just, like, staring into space, like, what just happened? Right. How did that right. just happen? Right. And then reading reading the book, and I was like, oh, just everything kind of fell into place that she was talking about. Yeah. And so I had started, as we talked about last week, I read Priest in preparation for this. I did get sin- I did get Sinner, but I skipped ahead to Saint um, for time reasons. So I had started Saint, but had not finished it when we did the interview. Um <sighs> It's, yeah. It's going to be a love fest today. I yeah. Think. Oh, yeah. So I think so. It's going to be an absolute love fest. I think so. All right. Well, we'll go to the interview. Yeah. And we'll see you on the other side, bitches. We sure will. Enjoy Sierra. Um, thank you so much, like I said, for joining us today. Um, we're very, we feel very honored that you're here. Um, it's funny. We were actually planning on reading um, A Merry Little Meet Cute for the holidays like that was going to be our plan and then Rebecca contacted us and we were like I guess December is just Sierra Simone month like I guess that's just what we're doing (laughs) it's the season man it's the season season. so uh it's the damn season if you are a Taylor Swift fan (laughs) um no I didn't get tickets and I'm extremely upset about it did anyone get tickets? I actually feel like the tickets didn't. They never were real. It was all right, like there. a shared hallucination that we had. Yeah. It's like how there's only two Sonics in the United States. It's like, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think they were ever real. It, you're right. It is just all like a fever dream. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Glitch in so, the Matrix. Glitch in the Matrix. Exactly. Also a Taylor Swift reference. Um, so I'm deep into Midnight's. It's really like just pretty much all I listen to anymore. Um, so what we're doing, we're doing Saint and then we're going to be doing a Merry Little Meet Cute. Uh, so we just get to like party with Sierra Simone the entire month. I'm very excited about it. I love it. You know, and it's good because I think Saint gives sort of like summer vibes. So if you're cold right now, Saint is like a good warmer upper. And then a Merry Little Meet Cute is a very snowy book. So I feel like then it's like, if you really want a winter read, you know, Sierra, I'm going to say it. pretty much most of your books are pretty spicy hot books. Yeah. Anyhow, so. <laughs> I have to say, I was listening to Priest, listening to Priest, and I texted Ray and I was like, I am making dinner and it is a miracle. I haven't chopped a finger off and I'm sweating, like sweating. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I wish I could take credit for any of it, but really it's my narrator, Jacob Morgan is incredible. Like there's no one like him. And in fact, I'm like, you can't leave me. Like you can't ever narrate other books. Me, you just have to narrate mine <laughs> because <laughs> I can't let you go. Well, I have to yes, say he that does those, an excellent job. Those are your words though, Lady McGee. And those are awesome <laughs> words. <laughs> <laughs> they did come from somewhere. Yeah. They came from your brain up here. <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, 
So actually we we'll go ahead and start with your bright spot. Um, this is something we do at the beginning of all of our of our episodes. Uh, what's your bright spot? And it's just something that maybe made you smile that week or uh, was an uplifting moment for you? Well, I mean, we're talking uh, for any American listeners, you know, that it was Thanksgiving last week. And my bright spot is that I brought my 85 year old grandma to my house and made the family peanut butter candy recipe. And it turned out, I don't know if anyone's ever made candy before, but it turns out the candy is like, it's like alchemy. You know, it's like trying to turn (laughs) lead into gold, turning caro syrup (laughs) into something hard. And it actually worked this time. And so I got a congratulations from my 85 year old grandma who's made this recipe for, you know, 75 of her 85 years. So it was it was a little bright spot for me. Here's Simone, candy chef. Yeah. <laughs> Looking it. forward to your next book where the heroine is a is like a pastry chef or like yes. You know. Okay, I don't know if anyone ever watched the children's movie Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, but yeah. I'm like I could possibly write a sexy Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, right? <laughs> like the the child catcher. I could actually like you know he would be a villain. And then, you know, truly scrumptious is super hot. So I don't have to do anything to make her hotter, but she is like a candy heiress. There you go. There's my candy tie in. Anyway, I, I mean, so. it smells like children. That's not a good line, though. <laughs> Man, your memory is sharper than mine. <laughs> All I remember is when he's like luring them into the cage and then he's like, ha you <laughs> thought it was a candy castle. And it was a, it was an old trailer all along. Oh God. <laughs> I can't decide how much of this overlaps with Willy Wonka. And that makes me nervous, you know? <laughs> Willy Wonka. There we go. There's another yeah. like vaguely traumatizing children's movie related yeah. to candy. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Why are yeah. there so many? It seems like there shouldn't be that many. I know. I my kids were talking about how you know their Willy Wonka is the 2005 or six like Johnny, Johnny Tim yeah. Burton one, mm-hmm. and I was like, you guys missed out on the horrible like bug tunnel in the old yeah. like 70s one. You know where they're going through the tunnel and yeah, the chicken with his head cut off. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. and yeah. Gene. Gene, uh, what's his name is saying Wilder. Gene Wilder, Wilder is saying all the mm-hmm. creepy stuff. Yeah, although at the end I get now. a little tear in my eye every time. At the end, I'm like, he's got a dad. At the end of it, I'm like, why? He does. Yeah, he does. Here's the end. Mm-hmm. I said good day, sir. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> rough. That is legitimately rough. And, I don't know. Uh, how I brought you guys to Gene Wilder. I'm sorry. Okay. What was the, no, what was you're the question fine. again? Every road leads to Gene. Every road leads to Gene. It's all right. I will say if anyone is going to write that sexy story, it's going to be you. Yeah. I have yeah. like all the faith in you to take like a, that. A grown up Willy Wonka in the chocolate factory. Mm-hmm. I, I love no it. Doubts. I would and read it. All the, it would, all the yeah. winners are grown ups. Yeah. It'll be yeah. great. Yeah, exactly. See, I knew you could do it. <laughs> love it. Love um, it. So we're here to talk about um, Saint specifically, but also um, in general, your priest series, um, which is all over TikTok. <laughs> At one point, uh, Ray decide, had declared that this was like the year of her priest kink. And I had not, I had not joined in on that at that time and uh one of our one friend of the show sl prater is a paranormal romance author and she writes lovely books about um also priests but 
different kinds of priests. And so uh And then we, you had Midnight Mass, like the show, and I was like, I just couldn't I, overload for me. I, I know. <laughs> it was just I was just was constantly a, just sweating. I don't know why. <laughs> and so then I I joined the foray and understand it now. You know, like I I get it. Um <laughs> and I, Saint obviously just continuing, you know, but like that's um it's I was watching an interview that you had done earlier this year and it's really fascinating to me. I have not I grew up Catholic, like born and raised, confirmed. I'm no longer practicing, but I grew up Catholic and it felt to me like the I had never put together that physical um connection between like worshiping and sex. Like I had never seen that in the way that you have. And I found that really fascinating. And I was wondering how, how did you make that connection? Was that like something that came to you early on? Or was that something that, that came over the years? I, I really sort of subscribe to the theory that for a lot of creators, like a, a story is sort of a synthesis of two things. So it's something that's probably been simmering inside you for years, if not decades, this friction or fascination or tension that, you know, has sort of been low key preoccupying you for a while. And then there's usually some sort of spark that really connects it to something uh, concrete or something that can actually sort of be manifested into like a, a, a single thing, a single narrative or a single story. And so priest was like that for me where, yeah, I did have that sort of Stephanie Meyer twilight moment where I sat down and was able to just write this prologue and the prologue, I didn't know anything about this character. I didn't know anything about the stories, but the prologue just sort of flowed right out. Um, and so it really was sort of like a flash of inspiration. It was like this apple falling from the tree, but I couldn't have done that if I hadn't been thinking about what it means to have a physical body in the Catholic church for a long time. And so for me, I, um, I was part of the Catholic church and what a lot of people don't know about me is I chose Catholicism as a young person. So, uh, I grew up in an area where my mom felt better sending me to a Catholic school than like the local neighborhood school. So my family's never been, there's never been a Catholic person in my family, like ever. Uh, it was just convenient and it was cheaper than like a real private school. And so, uh, I got sent to the Catholic school and then I got there and I was like, well, everything about this makes total sense to me. Like <laughs> there's incense, there's candles. We sing like mournful songs. There's a naked guy suffering in the front of the room. Like you, everyone feels guilty all the time. Sign me up. Like, this is how I already feel. Like, this is how I already process the world. I was like eight. Um, so I actually converted to the Catholicism as a kid. And like my parents sort of reacted to it the same way that I think a lot of parents would react to their kids being like, I signed up for volleyball. They're like, okay, I, I guess we'll take you to Catholic practice or whatever. So I had to do like catechism for a year. And my parents were very, to their credit, like super indulgent, you know, with it. And um, I don't think they really cared one way or the other. I think they were probably like, oh, good. She'll behave, which is if anyone knows Catholic school girls is like not a given. 12 years of Catholic school. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And college. So yeah. Right. Yeah. Definitely not in college. Um, (laughs) So uh, 
I, I chose Catholicism, but something happened in high school and I really sort of like, I don't know, I fell in with this like bad Protestant crowd. And so I started going to their, my friend's churches, which were Protestant churches. And what really struck me was how, um, and when I say intellectual, I don't mean uh, like mentally superior in any way. I just mean like where the action of worship is taking place, that Protestant churches are more intellectual in the sense that they're, the worship is primarily happening inside your head. And it's primarily like uh, mental assertions, right? So in Protestantism, you are listening to a preacher preach. Um, you might sing some songs. Some older mainline Protestant churches will have some degree of maybe they do communion once a month, or maybe there is some call and response happening. But for the most part, the actual liturgy is very thin. It's mostly listening and sort of uh, learning maybe about someone unpacked scripture for you or whatever. In Catholicism, though, you actually worship with your body. So your body is like a fundamental part of your worship. So you kneel, you sit, you stand, you walk up, and then you every week at Mass, you consume. You consume the blood and the flesh of Christ, and you shake people's hands. Like everything about Catholicism is sensory and physical. And so I really missed that, you know, hanging out with my naughty Protestant friends. <laughs> I really missed that sort of rich physical experience of Catholicism. But I was also really interested, and this did not change with the Protestant crowd. I was really interested in this idea that dogmatically bodies are suspect because bodies will lead you into sin. And so therefore, like, we cannot trust our bodies. Our bodies will lie to us with lust with greed, with hunger. Um, and so we have to like be really uh, suspicious and tightly control our bodies. And to me, there's like a really uh, fundamental tension there, right? That like we are basically saying that for God to fully connect and redeem humanity, he has to have a body. It could only have happened if he became fully incarnated as a human body with flesh and bone. And then on the other hand, be like, <laughs> but your body is bad and it's what's holding you back from being the best version of yourself. The soul is good. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Right. And so there is like this sort of dichotomy there. And I was always really interested in like that gray area between the two, like that place where the two spheres actually rubbed up against each other. Oh, that sounds dirty. I mean, it sounds dirty. <laughs> I meant like, you know, dogmatic spheres, mm -hmm. <laughs> but, uh, that place that where that friction is happening has always fascinated me. Um, and so I think I can really credit. I went to one panel at a convention, the romantic times convention, RIP, uh, it's no longer around. Um, but I went to a panel and I think Tiffany Rice was on it. Um, and there were there was someone, I can't remember her name, but she was an Episcopalian minister. And they were basically talking about uh, faith in romance. Like, and I don't mean necessarily like inspirational romance. So um, I'm not necessarily talking about books where a central sort of theme is uh, the character's, you know, continuing faith. Because uh, that is its own kind of romance category that we would call inspirational or, you know, faith-based mm -hmm. or whatever. But in sort of mainstream romance, so if you pick up like a typical mass market historical romance, you're probably not going to get a whole lot of conversation about that character's beliefs. 
And so this panel was kind of like unpacking like why that was, um, especially because if you think about in real life, when you have a relationship with someone uh, and you're going to get married and have kids together, maybe like that's something you usually do talk about is like, how do you want to raise these kids? Or, you know, what do you want to happen at your funeral? Like these are sort of conversations that are necessary and they necessary necessarily intersect with what we think about, I don't know you know, our inner landscape and also what will happen to us after we die. Mm -hmm. But we don't get that a whole lot in mainstream romance. Um, And yeah, and I thought that that was like, it was such a good panel. And they were kind of, they kind of talked a little bit about like sex and sexuality and sexual ethics and how that kind of intersects with romance. And, you know, it was an Episcopalian lady minister. So obviously she was pretty (laughs) progressive. But (laughs) I really, I really walked out of that panel feeling like, oh my God, like so lit up, you know, like I had been writing young adult dystopian under a different name for a few years. And it was the first time that I actually felt since I had first written that first book, so lit up that I was like, someone get me to a laptop. Like, I think I, there's something I want to write. And so that was kind of the inception of priests. That was a really long answer. I apologize. No, please do not (laughs) apologize. I I particularly enjoyed it. Um, (laughs) Something that that I found very evident in Priest and is clearly uh, a similar theme through the series. But but with Priest, it it struck me so, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? I want to say hard. Like it struck me so poignantly that the the relationship that he has with Poppy and the way that they feel about each other, at one point he says, um, Uh, I can't believe I ever had to choose between love and God. I can't believe that I ever thought that I had to, to choose Poppy and then not serve God anymore. Um, And I, it, it, one of the things about Catholicism that frustrates me personally is that we don't allow the clergy to marry. Deacons can marry, but you can't be a priest and marry. And it makes no sense to me because as you also point out in the book, like Tyler is still a man and apparently quite a hot man if the priest memes have anything to do with it. So I, it, it frustrates me that that's, that's like a block. Um, and I understand, I went to Catholic school. I understand where the origin of it is, but, but I loved the connection that you continue to make with with how God can be a part of your relationship in an encouraging way and not like, uh, like you were saying, like everyone feels guilty all the time, you know, like not in a spiteful way, like you're sinning, you're doing something wrong because how can that be wrong if, if God has gifted this to you? Yeah, there's actually, so for anyone who likes thinking about sex and God, there's a really great nonfiction book called Shameless by Nadia Bowles Weber, um, who is a minister herself. Um, And one of the things that she says in the book is, you know, she had a, she had a very sort of church approved kind of marriage, you know, for a long time, for like 20 years. And she and her husband got divorced and it really put kind of a seismic shock through her community. And, you know, even as progressive as she is and her community is, you know, there was still a lot of tension around the fact that their pastor was getting divorced. Um, And she says something in there uh, along the lines of, 
I don't think it makes me a better pastor not to have sex or to have really bad sex. (laughs) Like (laughs) not having good sex does not equal being a great pastor. And I think that there's something that it really kind of goes back to this tension between if you are a fully uh, incarnated human and you are, and if you're allosexual and you're fully sexualized, that therefore means there's something morally not entirely great about you. And that is something that actually predates Christianity. And this is why, like, I think it's so great to sort of look at the entire Mediterranean basin when you're thinking about uh, theology, because this is something that we inherited from the Greeks. And the Greeks were really intense about the mind above all. The mind and the spirit are so much better than matter that you can touch and perceive. And that sort of Gnostic, I mean, Gnosticism came after this philosophy, but that sort of philosophy really permeated Hellenized Judea. And so our Christian theology was really influenced by that Greek idea that like mind good, like our invisible self is our best self. And then bodies are just like, uh, not quite as good. Like they're fine because they're what we have to live in, but they're obviously it's better just to be a decorporealized spirit floating through the ether. (laughs) (laughs) And we really kind of inherited that. But I also think that it's really easy now in 2022 to look at, you know, the fact that the Catholic church has celibate clergy and be like, well, this is divinely ordained. It's divinely ordained. You know, Paul says that being unmarried is the preferable state. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, Catholic sort of apologia around why having a celibate clergy is better for a parish. Um, But the fact is, is that it's not that divinely ordained. It's been an ongoing conversation for 2000 years. So priests originally were allowed to get married. If I'm not mistaken, St. Peter was married and had a family. Um, And the conversation about celibate clergy was still roiling in the 12 and 1300s. In fact, there were times where, you know, the Catholic church would be like, fine, you can get married. And so for 100 or 200 years, priests would have wives and families. And then the Catholic church would be trying to tighten its coffers a little bit. And so they would say, actually, you're not allowed to be married anymore because we can't support your families in addition to you. Um, And so then there would sort of be this wholesale uh, abandoning of priest wives, uh, where these women would just be like, wait, my husband can't be married to me anymore. All of a sudden I have a kid that I can't support on my own, you know? And so divorce is not allowed in the Catholic church. And divorce is not really allowed. And so it was, uh, it was a financial and economic decision. There have been periods of time where the Catholic church in Europe sanctioned brothels for priests to use as like a physical outlet rather than them having wives, because wives are expensive and brothels are cheap. So like the celibate clergy, that idea in the Catholic church has been an ongoing convoluted and definitely financially influenced conversation. And so the idea that it's um, it's purely a moral choice to have celibate clergy is is not borne out by history and what the Catholic Church's history actually is. Um, and I would also say 
there have been many test cases, the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Protestant Church, where married leaders of faith communities are doing fine. Uh, Their faith communities are not suffering for the fact that they're married. So I think that it's one of those places where you can really see that the Catholic Church is a human institution, um, making very human choices over the centuries. That's fascinating. You're, I mean, like I said, went to a lot of Catholic school, but you are giving me an education today about <laughs> the early and the early history and uh, the the history of priests being able to marry or not marry. That's fascinating to me. Yeah, the unsanctioned history of the Catholic Church with yeah. Pierre Simone. <laughs> I'm sure it would be welcomed by them. They'd be like, you know who would write this really well? That lady who writes about priests. <laughs> falling in love with strippers you know exactly. like really just <laughs> exactly <laughs> oh my goodness um another thing that really that gets me with this series is uh and especially with Tyler but then also we we have similar themes with Aiden is that is this this uh theme of forgiveness and if you're sinning by doing things that the the church says you shouldn't be doing, but they don't feel wrong because it feels like, like you are meant to be doing this. And at one point, you know, I mean, there are plenty of altar scenes in praise, but I I thought to myself, like if, if Tyler already knows that he, that God will forgive him, then why do we even need to worry about the forgiveness? Like you already know that it's going to happen. So why are you feeling guilty about it? Why do you have to repent? I don't know that that I don't know what the question is there, but that was something that really <laughs> that struck me um, as I was going through it. Uh, but I suppose maybe that just ties back the thing about about this that I always go back to is if God's love is like this unconditional, you will He will always forgive you. He will always be there for you that's the type of love that we as humans are searching for. Right. Mm -hmm. And so even as a person who doesn't practice Catholicism anymore, I, I, there are people in my family who have found great solace and comfort in it, in, in the ways that are described in your books. And I love that story for them. It's just not one that I have found on my own, but I understand so deeply, like how much I have, uh, sought those types of relationships in my life where there are people who I know will just love me no matter what. Whereas other people have found that with God. And I'm kind of jealous about that, you know, like that's what a beautiful relationship to seek and truthfully not a way it was presented to me as a kid. Maybe it would have been framed differently. I think uh, I love Catholicism with all my heart, even though I'm no longer a practicing Catholic, but I will say that I think that one of the shames of the way that the Catholic religion is taught to its children is that it's taught very transactionally. And so there's sort of this idea that like, um, you know, you go to mass and the slate is wiped clean. You go to confession and you say five rosaries and the slate is wiped clean. And so it's almost like this accounting, right? That you're sort of mentally doing, which is not supposed, I don't think, (laughs) I don't think theologically, I don't think Pope Francis would say that's the way it's supposed to work, but that is the way after it's sort of sifted through 
the wonderful feudal structure of the Catholic church. That's the way that it gets disseminated to young people. I mean, that's how children understand it. And it's a very childlike way of thinking, right? Um, this, I did something wrong. So if I'm punished, then that evens out the score. You know, I hit someone in class, so I had to go sit in timeout. And then after timeout, like things are, I've even the, the accounting ledger and things are fine. Um, and as Paul would say, when you're a child, you think like a child, but then as an adult, you have to grow up and you have to set aside that childlike thinking. And so I think that what the, what the real position of the church would be is that, yes, that, that forgiveness is unconditional and it's always, um, it's always, it's a font that's eternally giving. But I really think there's, there's two things that are layered on top of each other. When we talk about why do we feel this? Why did Tyler feel this sort of guilt? And one, one thing, one answer, one layer is that the reciprocity of love depends on self-awareness. It depends on self-interrogation. Unconditional love can be abused. I think even, you know, even God's love potentially could be abused. And I think we all know maybe people in our lives who have abused our unconditional love, where we have had to put some boundaries in place because they are not self-aware. They are not self-interrogating. And so I do think that while guilt in and of itself is usually a byproduct or maybe not the most useful emotion always to have, uh, it does usually indicate that self-interrogation, right? Like, am I doing the right thing? And then maybe through that interrogation, you find, yes, actually, this is a good thing. This is what I want. And I don't need, I don't need to carry this guilt. Um, but I do think that that self-awareness, that humility is really crucial to sort of existing in a place of boundless love, if, whether or not that's love you're giving or receiving, or if you're existing in a connected web of love, it can only exist truthfully and transparently if the people involved are willing to ask themselves difficult questions about what their motivations. And also, even if they meant the best of things, you know, the consequences of their choices. Uh, but the other layer, I think, and this is like a little bit more cynical, is that guilt is really useful, not to the person who's feeling it, but to the person who's inducing it, depending on the situation. So if you have an organization that would very much like you to only do as they say, then guilt is very useful to give them um, as a method of control. And so if you have an institution that says sex, unless it's within this really narrow boundary is bad. So therefore you must feel bad if you're having sex outside of this category. Um, then you have a lot of people who are going to do as you say and do as you want, because we naturally want to avoid the feeling of guilt. In fact, I would say that's like 70% of human motivation is <laughs> we would not like to feel guilty um, because it doesn't feel good, right? It doesn't feel good to feel like you've done something wrong. And so the Catholic church has been very effective, I think, at building an environment that kind of makes you question even normal, natural and harmless impulses, right? Like two consenting adults, the consequences of that are almost nothing, right? Like if you have two consenting educated adults who are choosing to be together in that moment, there's really not as many moral consequences as the Catholic church would like you to think there is. Uh, <laughs> but then you, once you have someone who starts questioning your sexual dogma, well, then they might also start questioning, why do I need a priest to intermediate between me and God? 
or why do I need to pay my tithes to this building that does nothing for me? So you want that control to sort of be all encompassing it, right? Because once people question one thing, it all starts to unravel a little bit. Pull at that one thread. Yep. Yep. It just takes your entire carefully knit scarf just right apart. I know. And then there's me like at my keyboard, just trying to pull all the threads. That's all I do all day. Yanking every single one of those threads out. Oh man, the the listeners can't can't see me, but I I was doing a gesture like I was pulling threads, but definitely looked like I was milking a cat, a la yeah, me right. parents. <laughs> you can milk anything with nipples. <laughs> can you milk me? Can you milk me, Greg. <laughs> that movie is incredible. <laughs> canon. It's a canon film, you know. It yeah. truly, truly is. <laughs> um. So along these lines, you had said that your uh, your family is not particularly religious and nobody was Catholic. Do you get any pushback from your family with the type of content that you write? I mean, you write taboo romance in general, um, but this yeah. specific one. I would say that any of the people that I would get pushback from have purposely chosen to recuse themselves from engaging with my content with love. With love. So, you know, my grandmas don't read my books. My mother-in-law doesn't read my books. I think my father-in-law only has the barest idea of what I write, but I think in his head, I write like the flame and the flower, you know, kind of books. And that's, you know, what he has in his head. Um, my dad has not read my spicy books, but he could not be more proud. He tells everyone at his job, like, love that. That is awesome. <laughs> I mean, and he is like, you know, he was the kind of, he was a single dad. And so he would take me to the library so I could check out, you know, like 30 books at a time. He, when I was little, he would read the babysitter's club to me every night. You know, he was always so tickled that I love to read, but he did everything he could to encourage that. Um, so now that I'm a writer, he's just, he gets a huge kick out of it. He thinks it's so funny. I love it's the it. sweetest thing I've ever heard. Yeah. <laughs> I, love that, I love that he is so supportive, even though he doesn't want to read it. Like, yeah. Yeah. He's like, he I was... won't read it, but I want it on my shelf. He has all of my books on his shelf. He'll never <laughs> read them, but he wants to have them all. That's so sweet. We, we always joke on- that. Yeah. We have an mom. ongoing joke. Yeah. That our, their moms will never listen to this podcast. <laughs> yeah. I think my mom did at the very beginning, but it was actually around the time that we read American Queen that I was like, Hey mom, can you just not listen to this one? Yeah, maybe maybe not this one. <laughs> yeah. Skip to like the I'm only other grown-ups. <laughs> yeah, I'm using some words that yeah. I don't think you need to be having in your ear holes. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah. Good. Another thing we say in the show all the time is good for her, not for me, which I've blatantly ripped off from Amy Poehler. But oh, you know, yes. like yeah. mom, I liked this book, but I think you will hate it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And something it's too, that we always it's too grown up for you. That's what I tell my grandma. It's too grown up for you, grandma. Yeah. Something that we always ask each other, um, at the, like when we're wrapping up our review on the podcast, is would this book embarrass our moms? <laughs> and I mean, I I think this whole series would. I I you know yeah. I don't think either of our moms want to read these, these books. Yeah, but again, Might be a little intense. They're for grown ups. Yeah, no. They're for yeah. grown ups. They're for you guys. <laughs> Spicy, spicy. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, what do your kids, what do your kids know about what mommy does for a living? They know exactly what I write. In fact, um, this uh, summer I sold the print rights of the pre-series and the new Camelot series 
to, to my publisher source books. And, uh, so I had to stop selling them, selling the original covers on my website. So listeners now, if you Google priest and center and saint, you're going to find these beautiful covers with like flowers on them. They um, are beautiful. they are very pretty. Um, but the eBooks and originally the print books had sad shirtless men on them, you know, with nipples. And so, um, <laughs> but I don't know if you guys know this bookstores don't like nipples. And so they don't want to put the nipple books out. You know, it's, it kind the of messes books. with their vibe. The yeah. Books. We don't so we like, like nipples on our books or a Batman. That's all I know. <laughs> oh, come on. George Clooney's nipples were iconic. Um, Hello. So- <laughs> So um, when I had sold the rights on my website, I kind of announced like, okay, if you want to buy in print the nipple books, you have to buy them now for me. And so I had a ton of website orders more. I had to turn into a one woman bookstore for a month. And then I looked around my house and I was like, wait a minute, I see two teenagers who are doing nothing with their time. (laughs) I will pay them to help me package up books. Um, Perfect. And so my son is like always roasting me constantly. And he was like, be reading the taglines and he would be like real subtle mom, like (laughs) real subtle. Um, But I've always been pretty open that I write books for grownups that have sex in it because our policy, when we first had our babies, we only made one parenting rule and that was no shortcut answers. So I will always do my best to give a fully contextualized answer. And that context might evolve the older they get. Uh, but like I have always been open about it. And I've also always taken the stance that um, it's better to have an ongoing conversation about sexuality than try to fit everything into one big birds and the bees conversation. Um, especially where I live, uh, our sex ed in Kansas is um, abstinence-based and not very comprehensive, I would say. I wouldn't um, say it's top-notch in Ohio either, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's not ideal here. Um, so I, I knew that I could not count on our school being a resource for informed sexual decisions. And I have youths now. I have these young people, these young adults who um, are probably, you know, at the beginning of their sexual journeys. And so it's really important to me that they have information about consent, about protection, uh, fully contextualized answers about pornography. Um, I mean, I delegated that one to, to my husband, but, (laughs) but I, but I really think that, uh, teenagers especially are going to hear about sex no matter what this idea that my child is a tabula rasa and they will remain a blank slate until my sanctioned information is given to them when they're 16 or whatever, um, I think is a very idealized notion of how humans communicate about sex because sex is everywhere. Like it's in TV shows, it's in movies. They're going to encounter it in books. Like my 14 year old reads adult fantasy novels and sex isn't the point, but the main characters do have sex with people occasionally and it's not explicit, but it happens. Um, Unless we forget their friend groups and their peer groups, uh, who I know do not have good information. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want my 14-year-old learning about sex from other 14-year-olds because they don't know what they're talking about. So um, we've always taken the approach that it's going to be an ongoing dialogue that is obviously going to be more 
is going to evolve as they get older, right? So the conversations we're having now at 14, they weren't the conversations we were having at eight. But we did sort of start planting the seeds of like, this this is your body. Here's how to be informed about the parts of your body. Here's how to be informed about, uh, you know, how to communicate about your body. And that kind of ongoing thing. And for any parents who are looking for a starting place, uh, I really love a book called Sex is a Funny Word. Um, it's really inclusively illustrated in terms of like body shapes and sizes. And it's also very, uh, queer friendly in the sense that there's not sort of an assumption that the default pairing is going to be like a boy and a girl. Um, I think we started reading it around eight or nine. Uh, we read some sections together as a family. And then I would, I gave each of my kids a copy of that book to read on their own. And that way, like it gave us a starting place. And then it also gave them some sort of words and frameworks to start thinking about their bodies and relationships. Um, I think there's another book called weight comma what question mark. And that (laughs) one is really great for a little bit older, more like 12 or 13. And that one talks a little bit more about relationships uh, and consent and having a crush on someone and dating someone and what consent looks like if you would like to kiss someone. And that is that was another really great one. It's also graphic, uh, like graphically illustrated. I don't mean graphic and like explicit, but um, <laughs> lots of illustrations and pictures laid out like a graphic novel. So I think it's very readable for young people. Um, and so we've just always been kind of open about it in a way that was not the case for me growing up. Uh, because I have great parents, but I knew that the way that I grew up was not the most informed way um, that I could have grown up. So I'm like, we're going to rewrite the the story here. <laughs> I think that's so important, though. Um, and and perhaps, you know, something that has led to things like Time's Up and the Me Too movement that that people who are our, our age were not, especially in that Catholic upbringing, were we're kind of told to just not talk about it or like yeah. repressed it. And, and there are all of these things that I think, you know, in many ways that, that the Bell family has dealt with that perhaps, perhaps we could have avoided so many, so many awful things that have happened if kids had a better grasp on what was their body and what was appropriate you know, even so much as like, I don't make my daughter hug anyone she doesn't want to, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. things like that. Like if, if you don't want to touch someone, you don't have to touch someone. And if someone yeah. touches you in a way that makes you uncomfortable, you tell me immediately and mommy will deal with it, you know, yep. Um, yep. tell like a trusted adult. We, we actually bought her a book called consent for kids. And mm. it's all about that. You know, it's like, what is your body? And what does this mean when you're okay with someone touching you? And, um, I wonder if that's sort of our generations, like if that's going to be something that we correct and help, help make better for future generations, much like the Bell brothers are trying to do, you know, like trying to, to turn things around. So other families never have to suffer like they have. Yeah. I a thousand percent agree. And I really think that, um, I mean, this is again, me being a little bit organizationally cynical, but I do think when you have um, when you have these kind of tides in a culture that are all about um, keeping people ignorant in the name of protecting them, almost always that on the other side of the veil is control. 
Um, so this idea that ignorance is protective um, it almost always comes down to power and control. Uh, it's a lot easier to control those pesky women who don't like being fondled at work if they don't know that that is actually not okay. Like if they've grown up in a culture that tells them that they did something to invite it, that it's their fault. If it doesn't make them feel good, that's a them problem. It's no big deal. It was just a joke. It was just a drunk night at a bar for a work outing. You know, like all these sort of pressures to keep people um, quiet, uh, I think is almost always never coming from a great place. And I think that one of the things about culture is that it replicates itself without consciousness. So it's not like there's one wizard puppeteering Western culture to, you know, keep people <laughs> ignorant about sex. Um, but it is like a virus. It replicates mindlessly. Uh, and so I think that it's so important for parents to kind of interrogate how can we keep that virus from replicating here in our house? You know, how I may not be able to go out and, you know, give comprehensive sex ed to, you know, my son's high school class, but like I can make sure that in my house, my kids are not going to be full of misinformation and that they're going to treat the people that they would like to date with dignity. Yeah, of course. And, you know, I think, I think you're all, you're also saying that knowledge is power, you know, and if you give words and meanings to those things, then you are giving people the tools that they need to express the things that are happening to them or that they don't want to happen to them. And I think that that's, there's a lot of power in that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've kind of gotten us off track. I apologize. Um, <laughs> but uh, anywho, uh, there's something that we also, um, Ray and I were talking about is the the uh, theme of LGBTQ um, issues and concerns that that run through your works, uh, and not just in this series, in others as well. Um, do you feel a struggle in your writing because of how that community is viewed or treated by the church? And this is something that Aiden discusses quite a bit in Saint. Um, we're just curious about your thoughts on that. So I really think that... Um... So I, it's probably not going to be a spoiler alert for anyone to know that the Catholic Church dogmatically does not approve of queerness. Um, there is one way in which queer people can be sanctioned by the Catholic Church, uh, you know, permitted, and that is if they are completely celibate, right? So this idea that if you are fighting against your desire and your body, then that you are sanctified through through that. Uh, but you are not allowed to, you know, marry or or have sex or anything like that. You're not allowed to act on your desires. Um, what I really find fascinating about the Catholic Church is that uh, on its face, you know, there's this sort of brick wall of their dogma and theology. And uh, there's this idea like, okay, it's a monolith. It is this way universally across all parishes, across all monasteries, you will find a universal application of Catholic dogma. But the Catholic Church is so old, and this is the great thing about old things, is that it has been pockmarked and carved uh, and little niches have appeared. And sometimes those niches look like uh, a parish with like a really awesome priest who's like, I don't care. I love everyone, you know, come to my church and I will make sure that you get to connect with God the way that you want to. Um, sometimes that looks like monasteries that do the same thing. There are several openly queer priests and friars and brothers in the Catholic church who are doing amazing work, whether as writers or artists or just as pastors, 
uh, and they constantly live in threat of being excommunicated. Like that is something that is constantly uh, a pressure on them, but they stay so that they can help the other queer Catholics, you know, find, find their path. And so what I really like about fiction is that I can write myself that niche, you know, like I can write this little niche here for Aiden where he's able to be in a monastery where he's accepted and loved for who he is, where there's other gay and queer men there as well. And so for Aiden, when he's at Mount Sergius, it's like never, that part of his identity is never threatened. It's never uh, suppressed. There's like one dickhead brother, (laughs) but for the most part, like he is accepted and loved exactly as who he is. And so he's allowed to start on even footing on the same footing. All of the straight brothers are where he, you know, the main struggle is how to live a holy life, how to connect with God, how to get up at six in the morning and pray every day. And so he can have the same journey as everyone else in that little niche that Sierra Simone has invented on the plains (laughs) of Kansas. Um, And, but what I like about fiction is there's something about reading about the best case scenario, I think that empowers us to try to make the best case scenario in real life. And so I think that writing in fiction, you know, that we can have uh, a place for queer Catholics, that we can have a place for queer presidents, you know, that we can have a place for queer boy band stars and, you know, small town movies or whatever. Like, I think it allows us to be like, okay, it can happen. Like, we tried it out in the hollow deck and it worked and now we can go <laughs> solve our real life problem. Um, and so that, that is what I really love about my job is that I get to write the best case scenario of the world. And I don't, so I don't want to discount all the real queer Catholics who are in the church making that, you know, making that contribution who are trying to change it from the inside. This is just my like, my contribution from the outside is like, what if, like, what if we welcomed everyone regardless of who they loved? Like the church would be richer for it, I think. I agree. If if I were to rejoin Catholicism, I would prefer to be Sierra Simone's version of Catholicism, <laughs> if I'm being honest. Um, church of Sierra, yeah. Church of Sierra. <laughs> Amen. Um, if in your research, because something that also struck me with this series is how well-researched it is. Um, It's very obvious that you have spent a copious amount of time doing research about the Catholic Church and the history of it and the various roles within it. Um, Did you spend time speaking with clergy, um, particularly queer clergy? I did. I have never spoken to a a clergy member (laughs) about these books. I will say, (laughs) yeah, not about these. Never been brave enough. Uh, I've only (laughs) talked to Protestant clergy about it, but that was. I mean, those conversations have also been fruitful and and valuable. Uh, But no, I've never got. I've never got the balls to to (laughs) you know talk. But I will say. I, and I won't name names, but I do have um, authenticity readers who worked or still work in the Catholic church in like a children's ministry or a music ministry capacity or an administrator capacity, like in the church office. Um, so they have been so helpful. And especially because, I mean, I haven't been to mass in 10 years other than like funerals and weddings. And so they've yeah. also been really helpful Um there have been like some prayers that have changed. Actually, I can't remember. Yeah, 
like well, just, it was the greeting is changed and everything like that too. the greeting yeah. has changed mm-hmm. and uh like when I was a kid we said you know peace be with you and also with you and now yeah. it's like peace be with you and also with your spirit and yeah. so like you know oh. there's been like I know right I don't like it either uh no I don't like it either <laughs> <laughs> no, I, when I went to go I was, was working at a Catholic school I that I, I swear last couple of jobs I was at was at Catholic schools and I actually had to go practice before I went to my first mass because I was like there's gonna they're gonna be doing things that I don't I, I don't I remember <laughs> new thing like a, the odd man out yeah a customer feedback card at the end of mass where i can like be like i don't like the new words like <laughs> give me the old words back um so was there a vatican three we were unaware yeah, of or right, something what right? is jane now i'm gonna be one of those latin old, right uh, yeah i'm gonna be one of those old fogies it's like you can't take an advil before communion or whatever but um <laughs> no water for you. We're about to have communion. So, uh, yeah, I have not, but I will say talking to people who work, who still work in the church has been really helpful for mechanical things, uh, or setting sort of things. Um, and I used to be a public librarian, so I really love research. That is like one of my favorite things to do ever. And so, uh, it comes really naturally to me to be like, okay, in saints are, angsty monk Aiden Bell, uh, Father Bell's brother, he goes on sort of this European beer road trip (laughs) to all these medieval monasteries. And it it just came really naturally to me to be like, okay, and now I'm going to spend two months reading everything I can about how Trappist monks make beer and where they make beer and what their process is and all of that. And of course, you know, only slivers of it make it into the book, but I wouldn't be able to write the book if I didn't kind of have it in my head of how it all works. So I love research. It's actually a problem because sometimes I have to be like, stop researching and just write the book because I will spend, (laughs) I mean, I just did this yesterday. I just spent, you know, two hours trying to wrap my head around what a Catholic Cardinal wears uh, when he is in service. And then when he's out of a service, just kind of walking around and then, of course, after that two hours, I just wrote a sentence that was like, he was in a black robe. So, you know, <laughs> the research is not always that helpful. <laughs> I guess there's a such thing as too much information. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is that for um, for Father Jordan's book? So this is actually for, um, I'm writing a spinoff of New Camelot. Uh, so this is a retelling of Mark, Tristan, and Isolde. And it's another like kinky queer menage story. So um, exciting. Yeah. But one of the, one of the characters, her uncle is a Catholic Cardinal, uh, and not a very nice guy, but anyway, he's, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but he's great. He's like a, he's, he's got his black robe and he just sort of swishes around like a villain, you know, like Severus Snape, you know, with his robes yes. billowing around him. So, uh, <laughs> it's Love it's been that. fun but yeah that book will come out in july and it's called salt kiss and it's the first of that trilogy very exciting yeah it's gonna be angsty isn't it oh yeah well i mean yeah. i don't i don't know how to write any other way and i don't actually i never actually knew i wrote angsty books until i started publishing them and then people will be like this is so angsty and i'd be like is it like i just thought this is how everyone feels all the time I guess I just feel things very intensely because I'm just writing normal people to me. And then people are like, oh my God, it's so twisty and heartbreaking. I don't know. This is like a normal Monday for me. (laughs) This is 
conversation that Ray and I have frequently is that like I can handle a level of angst higher than what Ray can handle. Mm-mm. Yep. Nope. <laughs> because like nope. I I personally think it's important and and something cathartic for me in my own work is like writing through someone life is hard right being a human is hard and we go through terrible things and terrible things happen to good people but you can watch that character arc of someone like experiencing something terrible and sad and heartbreaking and then you watch them rebuild their life and to me that that's what makes me love romance novels so much is having that like seeing them come out on the other side and knowing that it will be okay. It will be okay if you want it to be okay. And if you can do the work to make it okay. I could not agree more. Like I really love writing to that catharsis. To me, it's like, it's what I love reading, the kind of books I love reading. And I I love having it. And so sometimes when I do encounter books that are a little bit lower, lower stakes, lower emotions, I'm like, I don't, so their rival cupcake shop owners, like, what's the, like, why am I reading this? Is one of them secretly a dom and he's going to tie her up and smear her with frosting? Like, what, what is going to happen here that's going to make it worth my time? <laughs> I, again, where is the book that Sierra Simone writes about rival cupcakes? <laughs> Where one of them is a dom and smears yep. the other with, with icing. They would be like you know? the perviest, kinkiest, you know, cupcake owners that you'd ever seen, but... I can't wait to read it. You know, it's going to be so good. Go hand in hand, actually. <laughs> no. really like, well. If I ever start a Patreon, this will be my first prompt is <laughs> cupcake Sign. rival cupcake owners, but you know, style. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we will be your first subscribers or your first supporters. Um, I, something that I actually love the most, I think about your work is it was actually something that surprised me the most about your work. The first thing I had ever ever read from you was American Queen. And actually that started because we we just wanted a book that was like real kinky. And uh, so I had gone to TikTok and I was like, book talk, I need your help. What is like- Do your thing. Do your thing. Yeah. Like, what is just the smuttiest, filthiest thing that we could possibly read for the show? And American Queen won out. And so I was just like, expecting... I'm honored. <laughs> I was just like expecting some erotica. Like I, you know, I expected it to be well-written and I expected it that it would be hot. And both of those things were true. But what I didn't expect was like, your, your writing is beautiful. Yeah. Like oh, the stories you. are beautiful. The the prose is gorgeous. I mean, there, there were times when I was listening to priests when I was just like, I had tears in my eyes. And same with Saint, like, and I'm reading Saint as opposed to listening to it, but like, but same thing. I mean, you know, when I was listening to Priest, I didn't have the experience of having the words in front of me. So yeah. to me, there's, there's always like a difference there, depending on how you're choosing to, to digest the book. But man, just sometimes it's just like a real kick in the gut where you're just <laughs> like, that is so poignant and terrible and wonderful and beautiful. And, and that's something that I really love about, about reading I, I, anything you write at this point, I think. Oh, thank yeah. you. I mean, I really subscribe to the idea that sex on its own isn't, isn't always sexy. Um, you know, so you can reduce sex to choreography, right? And, 
it might be fine, but it's not going to be something that is going to be memorable. Like where sex gets sexy is in the tangle of emotions and the context of their history and their future that is, is converging upon that point. You know, what is the sex going to change about what has been going on with them or what will go on? What are the stakes present? You know, what is this character risk losing if they give into this moment or they don't give into this moment? And so like, that's usually what I'm aiming for when I'm writing, you know, a, a, an erotic book, a carnal book is I want that carnality to be fully bespoke to those characters. So that scene could not happen without those characters. You could not put in different slot in different character names and have it be the same scene. And you also could not move that scene to anywhere else in the book and have it make sense. So when you're reading the book, you know, that scene had to happen precisely at that moment for the rest of the story to unfold. Um, and that is something that I think really, it's sort of splitting hairs when you think about like, what's adult romance with sex scenes in it and what's erotic romance. But for me, that's kind of one of the central differences is that you could take the sex scenes out of a lot of uh, adult romances and mostly have the same story, you know? So like, not to say that they don't have sex, but if you just got that little snippet of conversation, that little snippet of pillow talk after they had sex, you would still get that emotional beat uh, without having to see all the things that went on before. Um, but in an erotic romance, you really need to have all those sex scenes present for the story and for the characters to unfold the way that they should. All right, my dog, the postman went by, so I muted. <laughs> she was How dare, me. how dare that postman go by? How dare that person just <laughs> try to do their job? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. And I appreciate that, uh, that insight from you as well. Um, I think you're clearly doing a very good job. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> um, have you, I know you're, you're starting on this new trilogy have you worked on the rest of the priest series at this point? I know um, I, I saw after we sent these um, the questions to you that the last bell brother does get a book and then father Jordan gets a book. Yes. Yes. So that's the plan. So right now the priest series is uh, father bell is the first book that's priest uh, center is the second book. That is the oldest bell brother. That's Sean. He's a adorable millionaire dirt bag with a heart of gold. Uh, but he doesn't know he has a heart of gold yet. It takes this young nun to kind of, you know, find it. And then Aiden, who uh, is our brother, Bell, he is our monk. He is a flake. Uh, <laughs> and uh, that is sort of like, that's all you know about Aiden really going into Saint is that he is a flake. Um, and we meet him five years after Sinner. He's joined a monastery and become a monk. And then the last brother, the baby brother, the baby Bell, that's Ryan. Um, and I have not started Ryan's story yet, but I do kind of know a little bit about what I want it to be, uh, which is in Saints, they talk about these beautifully sculpted crucifixes that are inside the monastery. And the woman who sculpts them has like agoraphobia and she doesn't leave her house. So she's like a little bit of a hermit. Um, and I think she's going to need a model, like a muse. Uh, for her next sculpture. So I think Ryan needs to come hang on a cross uh, in her studio for her. Uh, 
<laughs> that sounds perfect. <laughs> I cannot <Yeah>. wait. <laughs> so I think that is going to be Baby Bell's story. I have no idea what Father Jordan's story is going to be, but he will be the last one. Uh, Father Jordan pops up in almost every series of mine. Um, he is Father Bell's confessor. He's the pastor of a church in downtown Kansas City, and I say that he's a mystic. He can hear angels and God. Um, so I don't know how I'm going to write a character like that, but you know, that's future Sierra's problem. <laughs> <laughs> future Sierra will figure that yeah, out. It's future Sierra will right figure now. it out. So the bad news for my readers is that. Um, you know, when I started writing Priest, it came from a very genuine place of excitement and fascination. And when I wrote it, you know, I wrote it before Sierra Simone was like, really had any other books published. So I got to write it in this really great vacuum of no one knew who I was. And I was writing it just for myself. Uh, and then when it came out, you know, like interrogating the responses to it, one thing that became very clear to me was that, um, you know, there are going to be some taboo topics that some people are always going to feel like are gimmicks or are sort of being exploited, um, you know, or that it's almost like a, a clickbaity kind of premise, you know? And so that was, that was not how I wrote, that's not how I wrote the book at all, but it really made me realize not only is it not how I wrote the book, but that is very antithetical to how I approach writing anything. And so I will make sure that, you know, whenever I engage in these topics, whenever I engage in this sort of priest universe, again, it's coming from a place of genuine artistic curiosity. Like it's coming from, here's a story that I want to tell, here are the characters that I really want to dive into. And then I'm never using the Catholic church as like a prop or as some sort of kind of clickbaity kind of thing. Uh, that's not what I want these stories to be. And, you know, I, it's just not who I am. Uh, so I can't control if other people think that I do that, <laughs> but I can, I can control my <laughs> own process. Uh, and so the bad news for my readers is that that means that these books take a little bit longer to turn out. So I can't just sit down and write five books about these Bell Brothers in a row. You know, I'm I'm kind of on like a three-year cycle with these. Um, so I will start Ryan's book when I finish the Leoness trilogy. So it will probably be like late 2024, I think, before it comes, before it comes out. But it's not because I don't want to write it, but I always want to make sure that I'm writing from a place of honesty and not like a here I am back to my, you know, back to my one trick pony of the Catholic church. <laughs> no, I think it's actually very evident in the series that, that you're not being disrespectful. I thought, I personally think that, that you're very respectful of the traditions and the rituals um, and the church in general. I mean, part of the entire premise of the, of the books of the entire series is that this family has been ripped apart by something terrible that has happened um, that the Catholic church is very guilty of as, I mean, as we all know, um, and they're doing their best to, to try and turn that around. So I, I don't find it disrespectful, but no. I can certainly see why other people would. would you know, I, I, I'm glad to hear you say that because I do hope that for someone who's actually read the entire book, that they wouldn't feel like, like if they came away from the book feeling like Sierra Simone doesn't like the Catholic church and doesn't like God, then they've definitely not read all the words, right? Like I right. hope that the the book can kind of be a testament to my affection for the Catholic church and also my, my own spiritual ideas um, about how to love God and how God loves us back. 
Um, but I do think that there, when it comes to institutionalized religion, there will always be um, a fear of any kind of interrogation, a fear of any kind of challenge or questioning, no matter how nuanced that question might be, no matter the context of that questioning, any questioning can sometimes be perceived as a threat, uh, you know, because if you're going to question this, what else are you going to question, you know? And it's a very good, we talked about that virus that sort of self-replicates. Um, it's really good at replicating inside the body of the faithful as well. So, you know, people who are not in positions of power in a church setting will still feel like they must suppress questioning from the people around them as well. And it becomes a very effective way of, you know, not allowing things to change. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> I, just, I just like had so many flashbacks of every single religion teacher that has ever hated me. Cause trust me, they all hated me because I had questions. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. As, yeah. as we all should. And I think that really the, the fundamental premise of that, fear is that questions are bad, you know? And I think that if we just allowed ourselves to step into a space where questions are good, where mm -hmm. questions can be productive, where questions can be strengthening, um, where a relationship to the divine does not have to be predicated on absolutes, because how could it be? Like, you cannot have an absolute relationship with the divine in the same sense you can have an absolute relationship with you know, the chair that I'm sitting on or with a person that you interact with daily, like it's necessarily going to be contingent and liminal and uh, shifting and conditional. And that's okay. Like that does not make it lesser. Uh, in fact, I think it makes it more stirring. And it's why over the years, I think humans have still sought a relationship to faith, to the numinous, because we crave something from the numinous that we cannot get anywhere else on earth. And that craving is good. Um, so I, I really think that all we have to do is just say to ourselves, what if questions were good? Um, and it helps shift our perspective. I agree with that. I, I did actually have a priest once that what I, I can't remember which parish I was at. And he did say, he's like, you do not question. Then he's like, you should be questioning. You should be questioning. I mean, your faith only grows if you question. And I think there's something to be said about that. I mean, um, if we're just being told what to do, to do, to think, what's the, what's the joy in life? What's the joy in actually finding love in a higher, you know, power then? <laughs> yeah. Um. Well, and it's, you know, it's not actually like in the stories that are handed down to us, questioning is modeled often. Like Jacob literally wrestled with an angel because <laughs> he had some feelings. And so, you know, <laughs> Uh, Jesus famously had doubts in Gethsemane. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like questioning and doubt is actually like it's handed to us as part of our tradition. Uh, but then when we actually act it out, like we are usually confronted with anxiety or fear or anger. Um, and so I think that that is really formative when you're a kid. And so our job is as adults is to try to, you know, un untangle as much of that as we can. I agree with that. I'm really glad to hear you say that. <laughs> it's just, like, I don't know. Makes me feel good as a human. Oh, good. good. Yay. This Yay. podcast is like, we're just tackling all the 
issues of humanity. <laughs> Let's tackle try. all of theology. We, yeah, right. we try and also then talk about Chris Evans' ass. So it's yeah, you know. so America's ass. <laughs> we just like, skip right over. Um actually let's go ahead and uh if you wouldn't mind uh shift to maybe some lighter lighter yeah. questions i like um, light <laughs> what are some of your literary influences like is there a book that got you into romance i know you were a librarian and you and you used to check all the books out from the library but was there something that like got you into romance so um i will say that i did not read a whole lot of romance until like 2011 or 2012 and it was because a critique partner of mine started writing a romance and we were YA critique partners. And I was like, I've never read a romance, but I really liked the one that she wrote uh, that I was, you know, critiquing. And then I was, and then she was like, well, you would really like Sylvia Day. So I read that Sylvia Day series with the cufflinks on them and was like, oh, this is great. This is so sexy. <laughs> and that just really opened up like the floodgates. And that was really... I think around 2013 was when I got like the Kindle app on my phone. And that was really the game changer because then it was like <laughs> the floodgates were open. And so I read a ton of contemporary, usually like BDSM uh, kind of romances. And, uh, and then it wasn't until like 2016 or 2017 that I was like, I feel like I came to romance through the side door <laughs> and I, <laughs> I should go back and read some of the like staples. And so then I kind of went back and started reading the historical, you know, Judith McNaught and Julie Gar Garwood and, and those kind of books as well. Um, but as far as like a formative literary influence, like, I, at my core, am always trying to write Jane Eyre. Like, I feel like no matter what I'm doing, like, I'm never going to write <laughs> a hero like Mr. Rochester. And my mom was, uh, it was a strength and a weakness that she would let me read whatever I wanted to read and really had, she was very agnostic when it came to content. So there was never really like a bell that went off in her head that was like, maybe my eight-year-old shouldn't read Plan of the Cave Bear or Flowers in the Attic, but they were the <laughs> books that were like around our house. And so I read a lot of fucked up stuff when I was like a <laughs> kid. And I think that it really wired me for a certain kind of story, which is like, I love those intense, extreme, cathartic kind of stories. I love those stories that, you know, you kind of maybe don't want anyone to know that you read. <laughs> like I, I've always craved that, but yeah, Jane Eyre is sort of my like, er text, you know, that's sort of like the pilot light in the heart of Sierra. <laughs> So then is Mr. Rochester like your ultimate romance novel hero? Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, I feel like probably romance readers will be like, Jane Eyre is not a romance because like it's a very depressing happily ever after. No, she comes no, back but, at the end. No, yeah, like together. they end up together at the end. Yeah, that is like, together. Yeah. That's kind like, of the tenant, he just, right? He just has a, you know, like a crazy wife and it's, it's yeah, fine. It's fine. It's fine. fine. It's fine. Death and mayhem. But uh <laughs> But yes, they are together. So I guess it is a happily ever after. Um, but yes, he is he is the hero that I'm always trying to like oh. work towards because there I I I know that there are Jane Eyre haters out there. I understand. I hear you. I hear you. You should not lo lock someone not away. Not on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> should you podcast. lock someone away? No, probably not. But you know, like I'm right. like, I hear you, but I counter with this. 
he's really sexy. <laughs> and right. He's played by Michael Fassbender. <laughs> he's Come played on. by Michael Fassbender. <laughs> this is a true story. I love that 2011 Jane Eyre so much that I've listened to the director's commentary and the actor's com- every every commentary so there was on the DVD. And uh, during the director's commentary, um, Carrie Fukunaga, Fukunawa? I'm going to say his yeah. name wrong. Carrie. Uh, said, he's the director. He was really young at the time. He was only like 27 or 28, I think, when Close he directed this. Yeah. yeah. Super young. Um, but he was talking about how um, Michael Fassbender, he films a scene with this horse when he's riding into Thornfield and he, he is startled by Jane and he falls off his horse. And he's asking Jane to help lead him back to the horse. Well, the horse was so enamored with Michael Fassbender that it would get an erection every time Michael Fassbender was next to it. And so they had to try, like they would have to walk the horse off, calm the horse down, and then they would try to do the scene again. And then like the horse just kept uh, responding to Michael Fassbender's very presence. So what every woman and male did. Like, I know. I was like, understandable, dude. Got it. I mean, yeah, I feel you. I, I, feel you, I horse. think also during that same commentary, the director said the scene where uh, he wakes up with his bed on fire and Jane, you know, throws water on him and wakes him up and he gets out of bed and he's just in like a nightgown. And yeah. you can see when the light is hitting him just right that he is not wearing anything under this gown, right? And so the director said that, uh, you know, sometimes producers and stuff will visit the set just occasionally throughout a shoot. But somehow this was the day that like all the producers (laughs) and everyone (laughs) wanted to visit the set. They chose that day. The, such the a night coincidence. Day. How weird. Yeah, such a coincidence. Shocker. Everyone wants to see yeah. Fassie without his pants on. Yeah. So. <laughs> they had to wait a couple more years for shame to come out and then they were good. But. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ay, ay, ay. Um, do you uh do you like to listen to music when you write? So uh, yes, yes. Uh and the kind of music I write or I listen to when I write does depend on kind of where I'm at. Uh, so I usually, for every book, I create a playlist, uh, and that playlist is usually what I'm listening to when I'm like ideating. So when I'm taking a a thinking walk, I take lots of thinking walks when I'm driving, um, you know, just, this is the music that makes me, if the book was a movie, it's what I see the scenes happening to. And so the music is pretty formative for that ideation process. Uh, and then there are certain times when I'm writing where it's like, I need to be listening to this song on repeat while I write this scene to help me nail the atmosphere. Um, but there are other times if I'm struggling to concentrate where I'll shift to instrumental music. Um, I really like there's a contemporary classical composer named Ludovico Einaudi. And so I listen to Einaudi pretty much all the time while I'm drafting because it's, it's gorgeous, emotive music, uh, but there's no words. So that really helps, you know, if I'm struggling to concentrate, it kind of helps me sink into my, to my own words. It's understandable. Um, yes. And I'm very familiar with that. Like I must listen to this song on repeat for the next hour. Well, I yes. figure out what I'm going to put here. Yes. That, and that makes so, total sense to me. <laughs> it's so funny. Cause sometimes I feel like a vampire because I will literally suck all the blood out of the song and then just drop it on the ground and never listen to it again. But like there, <laughs> because like I needed it so intensely you know, to get through this story moment or something. And then it's like, I can't listen to it anymore. <laughs> yeah. You get sick of it. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, okay. So I know we're running up on time. Um, two sort of quick questions. First of all, what is your, which Pride and Prejudice adaptation is your favorite? Oh my God. Why would you ask that? <laughs> I know. It's like, trying, you know? I know it's Sophie's choice. I know. It's I get Sophie's it. choice. I know. Yeah. Um, Okay. Uh, well, like there's only two that are worth talking about. Right. And right. that's, uh, 1995 and 2005, 2006. Yeah, 2005. Um, uh, and so I really think that the, the cinematography, the milieu, the production, the costumes of the 2005 are bar none, like superior, like that is, I mean, I, my Austin teacher in college, my Austin professor was so indignant that they showed a pig walking through the Bennett's house because she was like, that is not at all how the country gentry lives, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) I'm like, that's fine. But I actually think that for, you know, if we're not being hyper-realistic to the Regency country gentry, I actually think it's really illustrative of the Bennett's and their, and their sort of desperation, so to speak, right? Like you really see that the, that being gentry is not this economically assured position and that you can slowly slip down. And it also gives you perspective. uh, I think of, you know, the hot bitchy Bingley sister when she's like, (laughs) what is this family? Like, where am I? (laughs) Um, Like, I think it just gives everything more context, whether or not it's like hyper-realistic. That said, as much as I love Matthew McFadden's socially anxious interpretation of Darcy, I am really partial to just Colin Firth being a dick. Like, I like I love that what Matthew McFadden brings to the picture is like, what if Darcy wasn't a dick? What if he just was terrified of people and talking to them and not good at it? <laughs> but Colin Firth is so good at being like, I'm actually better than you. And that is such a good starting place for him to be torn down and, you know, stomped all over. And Jennifer Ely does such a good job doing it. And to me, she is so Lizzie. She is everything I pictured about Lizzie in the book, the idea of Lizzie, um, the way that she would dialogue, the way that she would banter, her relationship with her parents. Um, but I do think I'm going to go back now that the secondary characters in the 2005 are better. So I think that, uh, Judy Dench as, uh, mm-hmm. what's her name? Lady Catherine de Berg. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, I think that she's so good. All the sisters are so great. The guy who plays Mr. Collins is. Chef. Oh, he's fantastic. <laughs> he's fantastic. <laughs> So I I really think that, and Mr. Bingley, I love Bingley and the 2005. So anyway, I guess I sort of feel like production, secondary characters, 2005, strictly Lizzie and Darcy, 1995. Okay. That's probably more than you wanted. No, it's a, it's perfect. Perfect. It's a terrible decision to have to make. Um, All right, real quick. And then we will let you go. What are your desert Island picks? Okay. Oh my god. What would you take to a desert island if like what would you bring with you if you were got stranded like Gilligan's Isle style on a desert island? Now you you already have a potato, which will charge your Kindle. (laughs) And Harry Styles is there if you want him to be, or substitute in whoever else. Yeah. Perfect. And I'm just gonna assume the potato has a toothbrush attachment. So um I think that I would bring my copy of Jane Eyre. I would bring The Cruel Prince by Holly Black, which to me is an arguably perfect young adult book about fairies. Um, And, oh God, 
I have uh, narcolepsy. And so I think that I would have to bring then a really, really good pillow. <laughs> I don't think I can do any of this Gilligan's Island, like no. coconut fiber pillow or anything. No. Like, it's got to be or laying like your nice. head on a rock. No, no. no. Oh, no, no. no. I mean, I guess I could, I could lay my head on Harry Styles, but there you uh, go. That kind there of you go. <laughs> or the potato <laughs> or the potato. Really? The potato is multi- functional it is silly. <laughs> everybody made fun of me but i'm telling you the potato is multifaceted it's very important <laughs> it's all i need it's all we need because you can cut the the eyes off of it right and then plant mm-hmm. new potatoes so farming See, yeah food it's power it's just like it's got everything you need it's got entertainment all right Sierra thank, thank you, you so, so much for much. joining us today this has been a pleasure uh, we really appreciate it and yeah. um, we cannot wait to read everything that you write so well yes. thank you guys so much for having me I am sorry that we talked a lot about heavy stuff but You're that's so, you know that's the Sierra Simone experience uh and I I <laughs> we'll hope that take you take guys anytime yeah. <laughs> and I hope that you guys enjoy uh, a merry little me cute it's a very good yes. Uh, this is the perfect time of year to read to read it. Yay! <laughs> I have no <laughs> doubt. <laughs> Thank you so much. Enjoy Thank the rest you. of your day. Yeah. Thank you. And we're back. We're back. Thank you, Ms. Sierra Simone. Ugh. We hope you enjoyed that. I'm sure you did. I'm you sure. I. I also. How could you not? I mean, there's no possible way. I also hope that Sierra Simone enjoyed her time with us as I well. I hope so too, because we sure heck, as heck did. So. Yeah. I mean, again, how could you not? How could so, you not? So, <laughs> legit. Um, anywho, so we will, uh, we're going to cut part one now, and then uh, please join us for part two, where we will do our usual review with the compliment sandwich and hearts and eggplants and... Uh, and we'll close things out. Yeah. So join us on the Sound other good. side. <laughs> I guess in uh, the words of, of Marge Simpson over here, we'll be back in two and two. <laughs> I assume Ray isn't going to want to use this video for anything. So I don't think that we'll be using. No. Okay. Well, um, if you if you would like to, I did put makeup over the hickey on my neck today. <laughs> because I woke up and I was like, maybe I can go without makeup today. And then I looked at my neck and it looked like I'd been mauled by a vampire. And I texted my husband. I was like, what the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) I love that you have arrived to this interview with a hickey on your neck. And you told us about it. (laughs) So happy. I just want you to know that I live on brand. Okay. (laughs) 